Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. We say this all the time. The United States does not engage around the world alone. Mission success demands partners and allies. And that is why I'm honored to introduce to you Major General Jean-Luc Moritz of the French Air and Space Force. He is the French lead for the Future Combat Air Systems Program, or FCAS for short. FCAS is the next-generation fighter aircraft that France, Germany, and Spain are collaboratively developing to replace types currently in service like the Raphael, Typhoon, and Hornet. So for the U.S. Air Force, we have Next Generation Air Dominance, or NGAD for short, and France, they've got FCAS. And as we all know, the air superiority mission is one of the most important ones when it comes to modern warfare. Anyone who doubts that should look at how things are playing out in Ukraine. Reverting to World War I-like trench warfare with neither side controlling the sky is beyond brutal. No one wants to fight like that, which is why it is crucial to constantly push the state of the art with new design concepts, technologies, and employment concepts when it comes to next-generation fighter aircraft. So General Moritz, sir, I cannot say thank you enough for making time for us today. It is absolutely an honor to talk about fighter airplanes with you. Yes, uh, for sure. Thank you so much to give me the opportunity uh, to share with you inside this honorable and distinguished uh, institute. Yeah, I really just am so excited to talk about this and really just want to jump right in. The first question that really came to our mind when we were doing research about this episode was really understanding how did you engage with your citizens in France and how do you explain the importance of air superiority? Because it seems like so many in the world, and especially in the U.S., you know, it seems like people have really taken for granted the idea of control of the sky in the decades after World War II and, of course, the Cold War. And we've really coasted on existing aircraft designs, and we've worked iterative improvements through capability upgrades, but we have not really been pushing for aggressive innovation. Yeah, you're right. This is a, a real and heavy question. But just remember, as Bernard Lowe Montgomery said, if you lose the war in the air, you lose the war and you will lose it quickly. So even if it's more and more difficult to obtain or maintain it, air superiority, uh, in my opinion, still a prerequisite for freedom of action. Uh, absolutely, Sarah. Of course, at the Mitchell Institute, uh, we cannot agree with you more. And I'm going to borrow uh, your answer to this question so that we can you know, have as much influence on this topic uh, as possible with our listeners as well. Um, and, sir, I have to ask you, when you look around the world, uh, how do you evaluate the threat environment when it comes to the air superiority mission? For air superiority and perhaps much more for uh, shaping the future air combat tool, you have to have a look and a de-zoom of what is going on in the world. And in my point of view, we have, have six main assessments which could describe the future global threats. First of all, I think competition and strategic instability tends to normalize the international relation. The, the example of space is, is very mindy and the example of accomplished facts which are doing by our peer competitors. The second one is dealing with high intensity conflict, seems to be making a comeback. 
certain phase of uh, Ukraine is a good example for that. The third point is that the main and regional powers are reaffirming their areas of interest. This is resulting in a strategy of access denial, which are strengthening, particularly in the air, but also in the maritime environment. Russia for Eastern Europe is an example, and China for the South Sea is another example. The fourth point is that our main competitors or our potential adversaries are devoting more and more resources to increase their military potential with the risk of reducing the, you know, the traditional Western technological advance. Yeah? Uh, here again, uh, I think China is an example. Yeah? The fifth point is that air and ground or sea-to-air threats are much more modernizing, hardening also, diversifying, and they are spreading further in the framework of proliferation, yes? They will be much more interconnected, combining high technology and low-end technology. And to finish with that, the sixth point is electromagnetic radars or GPS, communication jamming, or the massive use of uninhibited use of drone becomes the norm or standards and contributes to the establishment of more and more A2AD bubbles, which we call it denial of access, yeah. These are the three assessments we have to take into account uh, to shape the future air combat tool, in my opinion. Yes, yeah, there's so much to talk about there. I do want to make a note because I know that you are in charge of not only air, but also space forces. And that is an area that we really focus on a lot with our listeners as well. So I'd love to right now invite you back to talk about some space focused things in the future. But right now, I really uh, want to unpack one thing from your comments there and to really understand the balance that you have. Are you mainly focused on threats in and around Europe or are you factoring a lot more of the geographic challenges driven by countries like China, as you mentioned? We are just uh, looking at all the oncoming threats, which are interesting France area of interest. Europe is therefore a real concern, but as you know, France has also the second most important geographical economical area, and especially in the, in the APAC area. That should be taken in, into account. Yeah, absolutely. Could, could not agree more. And of course, as, as hard as it is to discuss, uh, I'd like to ask you about Ukraine and, and how that is really impacting your calculus. And, and does that drive home the importance of the air superior mission to the people in your country? Yes. Taking, yeah, taking some, some, some feedback from operation in progress is an obligation, for sure, to improve our own forces. But caution and a bit of modesty are necessary to avoid some erroneous uh, conclusions. Despite it, I'm going for it. I have four points and assumptions from this war I'd like to share. The war, war in Ukraine, we are are okay. First of all, theoretically, Russia could have forced a very real air superiority. The balance of power for combat aviation would thus be established approximately one against four, but they didn't achieve it. Uh, the VKS remain uh, mainly dedicated to support of land uh, and maneuver and provide uh, additional support to the artillery. Uh, due to this doctrinal uh, vision and the lack of precision ammunition, military effect is only slightly achieved. The third point is that the ability of Russian forces to coordinate and integrate complex operations at the joint and even the combined level seems very limited. 
And the last point is that the Russians had and still have real difficulties in quickly countering the Ukrainian medium and short-range systems, in particular thanks to their grid mobility and their shoot and scoot. Yeah, there's a wonderful answer and so much to unpack there. And, you know, given this discussion of the threat environments and the requirements to maintain air superiority, at what point did France decide that it was time to think about a new fighter solution? And, you know, what were the main drivers that drove uh, that decision making? Yes, but first of all, allow me just to recall the role of the combat aviation in France. The main role of our combat aviation, the main roles, there are several ones, are to ensure at any time, in any place, independently, the nuclear deterrence mission. After, we have also to protect our territory and also our allies, and in, in particular in a, in, a, in a NATO frame, yes? To achieve all those, those missions and to face the evolving uh, threats, French combat aviation has to be modernized permanently. In that way, the Dassault, uh, Rafale is a recognized combat-proven aircraft and will be modernized to still so. The next step is obviously the new generation weapon system, NGWS. This is a system of system which is built in an European frame. It has been decided by France and Germany at the highest political level. And this is the long-term step for combat aviation. And sir, with all of this decision-making, was it the then-planned presence of having uh, F-35 and fifth-generation technology with many of your European neighbors a factor that drove this thinking? I, in my opinion, this thinking is really driven, once again, by the real necessity to preserve and protect France's interest in old world. But, and since you mentioned the F-35, let me give you perhaps the fighter situation in Europe in 2030. I hear about 550 or 600 F-35 in Europe in 2030, but not only. But not only, it's almost uh, 300 Rafale, 450 Typhoons, and a um, bit more than 200 Gripen, for a total of 1,000 non-F-35 European fighters. So the F-35s will represent less than 40% of the European fighter fleet. That is that it's not all about this plane. Yeah? And this is our strength, our together strength, a European strength, but also a NATO strength. It's about diversity here, and diversity is a guarantee of robustness, and the need for interoperability is very real as well. Yeah, sir, that is really a great point uh, when you think about the makeup of the total fighter force that will be uh, in Europe, and, and, and the, the numbers are staggering with what you point out. So I really do appreciate that answer. And being, you know, of course, a fighter pilot, I'm excited to talk to you about a new airplane. So c can you talk to us about and walk us through FCAS uh, and explain what it is? It a, is it just a single airplane or is it a team set of, of assets that will work together? It's above all a Franco-German-Spanish cooperation. This is called NGWS, as I told you before. But it's much more called WNGWS within an FCAS. And the, the FCAS represents much more the global combat aviation environment of the future, centered on the NGWS, so centered on the NGWS, but with legacy combat aircraft, drones, surveillance aircraft, tankers, 
and also aircraft like AWACS. The aircraft, the FCAS, is therefore much more a national thing. On the other hand, the NGWS is composed of the NGF, the new generation fighter, a 6th gen, I call it 6th gen, but I'm not very familiar with this denomination, which is much more an American, an American denomination, 5th, 4th, 6th, I don't know, but a high-end generation aircraft, and it will be the heart of the system, yeah? The second component are remote carriers. Remote carriers, you call it here uh, much more CCAs, yes? Uh, diversity of drone types that will accompany uh, VNGF uh, in its most complex missions. The third uh, component is the combat cloud, yes? Which is the the cement, you know, of this all this that binds all the bricks of the NJWS and the SCAF more broadly. The objective of the NJWS is to gradually renew the combat aviation capabilities of the nation participating in this project. So Rafale for, for France and the Eurofighter for Germany and, and Spain. Yes, sir. Again, uh, really fascinating to, to see what, what you are putting uh, together. So could you walk us through the role of, of each of the parts and the pieces that you described and, and how do you see them integrating and engaging in the real world? This is a, a great question, but also a difficult question. What will the NGWS be tomorrow? Uh, unfortunately, it's not that obvious because I my, myself do not know. So you will ask me, okay, why are you here? Okay. However, the profile of the NGWS could look like this. F first of all, for the NGF, it's not only a fighter, but a true system, system of system natively designed as such, integrating fighter, as I told you before, RC and combat cloud. That is what we call the NGWS, the one it, which is really developed in the frame of those famous cooperation with, with Germany and, and Spain. So what do I accept, expect from the NGWS? It must be able to exchange large amount of data, updated data, develop disruptive tactics thanks to AI, and perhaps uh, quantity calculation, remain discreet, discreet, strike by surprise and with precision, be maneuverable to survive and operate from land and sea. This is already what, what we attempt today, yes, but tomorrow we must go faster, further, higher and stronger than our opponent. The first point is that discretion mainly embodied by stealthiness and discreet communication will always remain and asset to more, despite the development of circumvention technologies such as low-frequency radars. Let's back to the fighter. The NGF is, above all, a fighter aircraft. As such, maneuverability will be particularly useful for surprising, fighting, and surviving. When I'm speaking about fighting, I don't speak about dogfight. This is behind us. But I speak about fighting because you have to survive. You have to avoid a missile. A few words about armament. Armament is not part of the cooperation, but must also rely on key performances, which will make the difference. I think about hypervelocity. I think about saturation, connectivity, sensor integration. It is also essential to develop interoperable weapons. This is a feedback from Ukraine. It has to be also resilient to the lack of DNSS. Yes? Another point is, if you want to wait, that means create mass against a large opponent. If you want to saturate, that means decoy, 
or flush out opposing defenses. If you want to collect information, for example, and update a tactical situation, or if you want to absorb the first blow provoked by the reaction of enemy or disorganized tactics, complicated plan, the NGF must be accompanied by a diversity of remote carriers. Okay, and I will add those remote carriers have to be affordable. That means there is a concern of low cost to integrate. And to finish with that, there is a need of a discrete, secure, resilient, high-speed connectivity, enabling the sharing of reliable updated data. This constitutes the game changer of all this. That is what will change our tactics and allow us to confuse the opponent. So the heart of the NGWS is not only the fighter, the heart of the NGWS is how we will manage to have a high-end combat cloud. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, all the pieces coming together and how you envision them working. It's just, it's so robust and, and it will really be such a game changer. I wanted to ask, before we started recording, we were talking about the Alpha Jets. And for those that don't know, it was a consortium between the France and Germany and, and of course, other countries like Spain flew the Mirage and, and things like that. So at what point did this come together with this consortium of these nations? So was it designed this way from the beginning or did it evolve into a collaborative effort between the three nations? Yeah, you're right. It's time for a bit history or a bit context. The project was decided by France and uh, Germany in 2017 at a very high level, at the highest level. Uh, Spain joined the program one year later Another point, another milestone, an interesting and important milestone is that just one year after, in 2019, the three air chiefs signed the high-level common operational requirement document that symbolized a common vision, a common operational, a common air force vision about what we want to build together. Another step is, perhaps you have that in mind, at Le Bourget Air Show this year, France uh, announced the join of Belgium, yeah, uh, Belgium with an observer status. This is a real opportunity to shape an European air combat tool to strengthen, on one hand, European defense policy, yes, but on, uh, on, the, on the other hand, to maintain uh, the highest level of defense industrial technologic base, yes. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. I was unaware of the, the Belgians, so that, that is a, that's really, really tremendous that they're coming in as well. Uh, sir, ha have you learned any lessons from fifth generation types? I know that you mentioned this kind of something that we use more in the U.S., but things like the F-22 and the F-35, and how have they impacted the way you're thinking on developing uh, FCAS? I, at that time, I have no real operational feedback about F-22 and F-35. I don't fly this aircraft. France doesn't fly this aircraft. We have no information about this, this aircraft. So it's quite difficult to, to create or to imagine what could be a real lesson learned or a real operational feedback about, this, about those two aircraft. But I noticed that those two aircraft have in common the stealthiness, yes? Uh, two more, once again, uh, despite capabilities like uh, low-frequency radars, uh, in my opinion, stealthiness will really still, as I told you before, an asset for tomorrow, despite the voices you hear, okay, let's throw back stealthiness, uh, let's create a fighter, maneuverable, I'm not sure. At that time, I'm not sure. 
the study we are driven driven are taking into account stealthiness at that time. Yes. Yeah, and I wanted to just kind of elaborate, as you mentioned, it's kind of more in the United States that we use this fourth, fifth, sixth generation idea of technology. And it seems that FCAS is kind of discussed as a sixth generation technology. So do you have a something you can talk about of what you see as the differences that you know would make this, as you mentioned, a next generation fighter? Okay, I'm not really familiar with this kind of classification. I'm not very comfortable with, as I told you before, with four, fifth, sixth generation. We're just going to build the next generation aircraft or system of system. But basically, the next generation of fighter or system of system should implement at least new technologies and why not disruptive one. Yeah, sir, I could not agree more. Yeah, the United States, uh, we seem really, you know, focused at, with the United States Air Force on developing the idea of this collaborative combat aircraft, you know, this next generation uh, of uncrewed air systems that will be highly automated and then be able to team with other combat aircraft. And it's a hugely complex set of capabilities that gives rise to a huge set of new questions at the operational, tactical, uh, and even the technical levels. And it also brings in a question some concerns regarding our artificial intelligence and its role in the battle space. So, sir, how is the French Air and Space Force tackling these issues as part of the FCAS construct, and what is your vision? Yeah, so you, I'm a fighter pilot, yes. So natively, I, I will defend the aircraft in which you have a fighter pilot inside. Okay, let's look forward. If we want to have CCAs or drones, or combat, uh, unmanned combat air vehicles, there's a reason. Yeah. What are those reasons? We had a glimpse before I gave a, a few uh, rationals or arguments for that, but the CCA or RC is a risk taker, first of all. We build something in which we won't put a man inside. Okay, let's go take the risk because I have to keep my crews, I have to keep my men's because this is a Western way of thinking, yes? Okay, what else? Oh, yeah, mass. We speak about mass. Okay, tomorrow in certain scenarios, European one, Indo-Pac one, it seems obvious that the Western forces, the Western coalition will have much more mass. Much more mass that can be air fighters, but fighters is expensive. We know we have some numbers. You look at the numbers, Mirage F1, Jaguar, Mirage 2000, Rafale, everyone is cost much more than the, the, the aircraft before. Um, that's why perhaps we have to find something uh, so unmanned, uh, taking risk, creating mass, and uh, it should be affordable. Third point, perhaps we must imagine a combination, a mix between high-end technology and much more low-cost things. So this is a real challenge we have to face with our beloved industrials. Okay, let's build something which costs a bit less. Yeah. There is another uh, point, and you mentioned it in your question. You mentioned AI, yes? AI, that means perhaps autonomy. I'm a fighter pilot. I flew with many in, in, in a crew way, and my wingman, yeah, I always had to look at him because he's a wingman, he's young, he, he, okay, but sometimes I can't look at him. I have something to do, and he has something to do. Tomorrow, we cannot drive in our aircraft the CCA and the remote carrier, so they must have a certain autonomy. And this autonomy has to be thinked in a, in a, global, in a global way, and to help the crew, to help the, the men to stay out of the loop, yes, and to have a 
quicker OODA loop, you must assist him, you must help him. Perhaps AI could be a solution. Okay, so risk taker, mass, autonomy, affordable. I think you have four or five keys, which is our thinking today to drive or to imagine what our remote carriers can be. Excellent, sir. Yeah, what, what a great answer to to let anybody know that that it was wondering what, as we call it, the CCAs would be doing. And I could not agree more as a fighter pilot. You're right. We we need the ability to, to send these high risk takers out uh, in front of us in the battlefield because they will <laughs> they will hopefully detonate the picture in front of us and let us know what's going on or what the intentions are. And sir, you mentioned it, calling it the, the combat cloud, but as as many of the listeners know, another crucial set of ingredients required for the success of this is the networking, the data gathering and processing, and putting things like command and control together as well. And in the United States, we often refer to that as the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2 for short. So where does the French Air and Space Force stand on that front, and how will that sort of construct integrate with FCAS? Yes, uh, perhaps let me give you the vision we have about that famous combat cloud. As I told you before, the combat cloud is really an integral part of the NGWS. It must natively designed as such. It is central to multiply perhaps capabilities and effects. It is also, as you mentioned it, essential for multi-domain operation because you want to connect different combat cloud. There, there are several options. You can have the, the whole thing at the end, the mega uh, nice uh, combat cloud. I'm not sure we can reach that from scratch. Not on the French side and perhaps not on the American side, I don't know. But, but we have to go in, a, in a, an incremental way, step by step, to create perhaps a global combat cloud or combat cloud which has to be connected. Air domain combat cloud, perhaps a multi-domain combat cloud, European one, NATO one, don't know. But things have to be connected. It is also based on, as I explained it before, different kind of, of connectivity, satellite one, you need a connectivity which is operating in those uh, this area which is called the far edge. Uh, the far edge is the most contested area in which perhaps you won't have satellite communication, but you have, you need a communication between your fighter and your remote carrier and perhaps your fighter and uh, an allied one, uh, it could be a Tempest, for example, it could be an NGAD, uh, and that's why it must be discreet, resilient, high speed. Um, this is very, very, very important. Um, Combat Cloud must also be designed as uh, uh, to guarantee a maximum efficiency and autonomy of each platform through an optimized data sharing and also a real functional service distribution. Yes. And the Combat Cloud architecture must also be scalable, yeah, open. Yes, to ensure not only interoperability with our allies, but uh, also the, the level or the degree of collaboration which will be agreed according, on the one hand, on the sovereignty constraint, on the other hand, on the requirement that are necessary in a certain, in a specific coalition operation. So we all have in mind that sharing data, sharing deep data, okay, when you share data, there are some information for, from your radar, from your electronic warfare, and perhaps nations are not very kind to give those information because they show 
perhaps the, the technological advance you have or per, perhaps the, the difficulties you have. Yes, we all understand that. But this is not a problem. This is not a problem. Why? Because there will be a technological solution. Some, somehow we'll find a knob uh, or, uh, to store, to say, okay, for a real interesting and uh, operation, we'll share much more data. For a Trident Atlantic exercise, we'll share a bit less data. I am sure, I'm convinced we will find a solution for that. Yeah. You also mentioned the C2 functions. The combat cloud, the way we design perhaps our fighter, because we create a fighter, we want our fighter to command also. We want our fighter to survive, we want our fighter to win at the end. But we want the fighter to command. That means we could imagine to delegate certain C2 functions from the high or medium level to, to the fighter level. Yes, that means the, the data sharing and the service which are available and also the way we train our crews and pilots need to integrate the fact that we have to dedicate a certain part of C2 because once again, in the far edge area, perhaps you won't have any, won't any more orders. They have to decide and they have to decide with the good things, the good elements, the good arguments and the good rationales. I, I just forgot something about this famous common cloud. Um, its achievement, the realization of an incremental uh, combat cloud uh, poses also the challenge of standardization uh, and standards in an international environment with real strong industrial and commercial competition. Well, sir, as, as both of us are fighter pilots, we can't not talk about the role of a fighter pilot. So, you know, I've read some reports that you're thinking about this person more as a mission commander, not just a traditional fighter pilot. Do I have that correct? Yes. Once again, just keep in mind that the NGF still remains a fighter aircraft, which needs a fighter pilot. Okay, I repeat it. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> just keep in mind that uh, the NGF still remain fighter aircraft. That's why we need a fighter pilot and not just an operator. But we want the whole system to fight, to command once again, to fight, to survive, and to fight to win at the end. That means we want the pilot to be in, on, or out of the loop with dedicated C2 functions, as I told you before. But to speed up, to speed up the OODA loop, the pilot needs assistance once again. And I think we're going to reach the physiological limits. Yeah. Also, uh, we are brilliant. You, you agree, huh? Are you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you agree. We, we are needed. <laughs> but let's recognize that perhaps in the future, if we want to stay in, on, and out of the loop, and I understand that on a, on, on a real political level, at that time, we want to keep the man in this loop. If we want that, we have to help him, okay? And I think AI could be a solution for that. Yes, yeah, sir, I absolutely agree. And, and I know that we're, we're kind of joking about being proud fighter pilots, but eventually, you know, there are things that, as you mentioned, the person will be the limitation, and we have to accept that, that part of the technology advancement. But, you know, I do want to mention and ask you about the impact that training will have with this, of course, training and allied exercises, because uh, this really cuts to the core of how we will execute our missions. So what are your thoughts on that? The, f the first point is training together in allied exercises were still the best way to strengthen interoperability. But you're right, uh, formation and training has to be questioned. Uh, for sure, the daily training flight we all used to know, and especially you as a fighter pilot, will be largely insufficient and inadapted because of 
you know, increasing uh, global costs, uh, peacetime rule, contingencies, air roughness, and all other showstopper. So nobody here in this room and will be surprised if I'm talking about simulation. Uh, but we have to really deepen how simulation has to evolve to help much more than before. So for, in, in the four points, I think simulation must be embedded by AI also. Simulation must be taken on board of future aircraft. Simulation must integrate constructive tools also. And at the end, simulation must address different level of skills, okay? For France, the French Air Force is developing since 2018 inside the French Air Force Air Warfare Center. I had the, the chance and the honor to command just before joining this program, the Collaborative Combat Expert Center, which aims for a, a concept called LVC, Live, sure. Virtual and Constructive Training. At that stage, we are in a LC, training and uh, we hope that at the end of this year we'll connect simulation to to have a real LVC LVC training in addition uh, we develop also sort of networking massive simulation tool which integrates non legacy simulator which are too expensive we integrate representative simulation taking from the shelf and it's the objective is to train high level, very high level conflict or operation for crews, which also have a high level of, of doing. That, that means in this tool, you won't learn to deliver a missile. In this tool, you won't learn to fly uh, in a specific formation. Uh, you won't learn to shoot also in this sense. No, no, you learn to how interact in a complex operation with many, many assets. So those two tools should normally have a could be a good answer for how we can imagine. It's, it's a beginning effect because this is real-time training here, but it could be a good basis to, to build what kind of formation and training we have to adapt for our JWS tool. Yes, sir. As you're speaking, I'm thinking that, you know, of course, none of this sounds easy. And we certainly know that in the U.S. we work on advanced programs. And, and I'm just really wondering if you if you can share the things that keep you up at night working on a complex program like this and what your challenges are and what you're doing to overcome them. Okay, okay. be, be sure I'm, I'm yeah, um, I'm sleep right. I'm, I'm, I'm really sleep right at night. Uh, not awakened at that time, but you're right. There are some uh, few challenges uh, we have to face. Um, the first one is dealing with innovation and agility. Uh, the, the program focuses on innovation uh, to identify new technologies or ideas to integrate, but the difficulty is to integrate them in an agile manner. So we have some margin in, on this item, and this is a, a, a real challenge. The second one is technological one is high publicity. This is, in my point of view, at that time, a, a disruptive technology, which only a few nations master. But it's a real benefit for operational superiority, especially for weapons. The other one is AI and quantum uh, calculation. Uh, this is for me another disruptive technology which must be taken into account and integrate the system of system once again to assist the crews and the operator and especially to accelerate the decision chain. The fourth one is much more dealing with low cost armament, but also CCAs or remote carriers. 
must follow a low-cost logic to justify either the stocks, this is a, a lessons learned or feedback from Ukraine, but also a consumable type of fuel. And finally, the other challenge, which makes me wake up a bit early, is how we'll have an open and easily scalable architecture for the combat cloud. I mean, yes, it is a, but this is a real guarantee of responsiveness to adapt to changing standards. Yes, sir. You know, uh, one, one thing that's also causing me to think as, as you're talking is uh, what is the timeline that we should use to understand the development uh, for FCAS? And uh, as I'm understanding it from reading about it, uh, that you're looking at an initial operational capability sometime in the late 2030s. Are there uh, major phases and milestones between now and then? Yes, but uh, to, to have a look at this agenda, remember, we, we are not just dealing with a fighter. We are trying to natively have a, a real system of system. That means that we have, at that time, a lot of studies to do to select the right combination between what kind of fighter, what kind of remote carriers, and what will finally be the architecture of the, of the combat cloud. At the same time, there are, right now, some technological maturation ongoing. All this leads to a demonstration phase with flight demonstrator attended in early 2029. The IOC of the NGWS is expected at 2040 after 10 years of development and pro production of the different systems. So this is approximately the timeline for the NGWS, but Keep also in mind that there is a timeline for all the a roadmap for the French combat aviation before we aim in a shorter time frame the Rafal F5. Yes, General. What about the uh, anticipated total build numbers? Any thoughts on that? And then, as you're building this out, uh, are there steps that you're taking to extend or th that you need to take to extend the life and modernize your current fleet until FCAS is ready? This is a, a question. Uh, for which um, it's quite difficult to answer because, as I told you before, as the final combination has not been defined at that time, that means you don't know really know what your new generation fighter will look like. You don't know really know what function will be embodied. It's quite difficult to imagine with the different missions the French Air Force has, and I, uh, I noticed that at the beginning of the interview, uh, you don't know how many uh, aircraft or you have many system uh, you will need. But you're right in, in one way, we need mass. And uh, I explained it before, mass is, is very important. And perhaps we can remind three rationals about that. The first one is really mass is, is given by the, the right balance between high end technology and low cost. Remember, mass is also given by affordable RCs. Yes, they have to be uh, together and alliance and collaborative warfare. But for, at that time, I think it's very difficult to, to have a number about what we need to more. Quite difficult. Sir, it's been a real honor to have this discussion with you today and really learning a lot about your program. But I have to ask, what did we miss in our research? Uh, what questions did we not ask you? And do you have any thoughts that you want to share with us? Yes, there are, there are so many items. Uh, issues and challenges to shape future air combat tools, but uh, unfortunately we have enough time. <laughs> but we, I, th I think we made a, a nice overview. 
just keep in mind partnership and uh, interoperability and much more collaborative air warfare won't be won't be successful if we uh, don't keep in mind that all this has to rely on a long-term vision of common values and destiny we share in a Western area, you know. Without this, we cannot build the future. Sir, just one last question. If FCAS works as you intend and NGAD and the other allied efforts also work, what is your vision uh, of what we should expect for the future of the air superiority mission? Take us on a sortie. What do you see? I, I could here easily uh, conclude with some common principles like large cooperation is the solution to meet uh, common operational ambition. Okay, uh, operational and technological superiority remains a prerequisite to win the war tomorrow. Okay, yes. Building disruptive tactics enabled by AI can take calculation will help us to win the battle. Yes. The diversity of equipment and capabilities, F-35, rifles, Dassault rifles, you know, Eurofighter, JCAP, NGAD are a richness that will contribute to our future influence. Yes, but for real, for real, I have a dream. Yes, I have a dream. I dream that a Rafale could fire a missile with updated data coming up from F-45. I dream that the new generation fighter could take control of CCAs and a Tempest in the Far Edge area. I dream that we could, at a short whistle, on an airborne exchange ATOs, updates, target folders, fire authorization, why not? Fire authorization between NGAD, NGWs, or JCAP. I dream that we'll find an industrial agreement for common standards in which either European and American industry find something to suit them. I dream that we could reach that at a political level. And to conclude, just remember FCAS is back. And, and sir, again, just personally want to say thank you so much. It's been an honor to speak with you. Yeah, well, thank you. The honor is mine. Thank you so much to take time uh, to invite me in this honorable institute. I'm very honored on my side. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.